Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. Hey everybody, it's Matt again. I'm still around. And waiting over there in the margins, it's the author of the In the Margin series, Dana Roach. Good evening everyone. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content such as podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. Real quick though, Matt, I understand that you've recently taken delivery of some new cards? Yeah. Is that I, true? I, yeah, I got some, some mail today. Um... We actually, got some listen, we actually listened to you open all your mail before the yeah, show started, which it, was a lot of fun. This is true, yeah. It was live broadcast for all to hear only. All right, so what your, you got? Tell us, man. So I got a couple cards. It's all from Ammon Kit Block. So I've, I've been redoing my my Narset, cheat everything, take all the turns deck, because it got kind of boring and repetitive. I kind of mentioned it last week. So I got some cards. I'm turning it into a tokens, spell slinger, like monastery mentor young pyromancer type deck so i picked up a a locust god just because i want to draw lots of cards i'm playing a lot of cantrips like even getting you know real desperate like leap and expedite and just cantrips to draw cards trigger those guys so i got a locust god then i got a commit to memory just to play a little disruption then wheel everything around and then i picked up a pull from tomorrow yeah so i draw x cards and discard played it a little bit early and it, it just needed some more draw to find all the powerful stuff so seemed only natural to pick up a Locust God along with draw X and draw seven, because apparently those are really good. You're a sick, sick man, Mr. Morgan. <laughs> hey, Dana, what about you? Are you building into anything interesting, anything new? Um, I kind of have two decks that are probably going to wind up being one deck at some point, and I can't figure out which way I want to go with it. I've been wanting to build a Boros deck for a while, but I can't find a commander that really jumps out at me. And I also kind of want to do a multiple attack phases deck. So those two things seem to kind of go well together. But I don't want to build Aurelia either because that's fairly obvious. So I've been kind of tinkering with Anax and Siamede, but I don't quite know if that's going to work. Um, I, I can fire off a bunch of prowess triggers in one turn, and that stacks nicely with Anax and Siamede. So I think I can get some big creatures and then swing twice with them. But I, I just don't know if it's enough. So kind of simultaneously with that, I'm trying uh, Martin Stromgold, who's an old commander out of Ice Age originally. Yeah, man. And because of the way he works, when he attacks, your creatures get plus one, plus one for each other attacking creature. So that will double stack, kind of like how um, Exalted does. So if I get two attack phases, I get double triggers on Martin. So that's kind of the other deck I'm brewing simultaneously to kind of do the same thing. And I think, at least looking at 
how it's working in playtesting, I'm going to probably wind up going with Martin Mono Red over Boros. Oh, wow. I, so I'm looking up Martin Stromgold, and that's, this is like one of the best creatures I think I've never heard of. He's a four mana, one, one. Whenever he attacks, other attacking creatures get plus one, plus one for each other attacking creature. That's amazing. Yeah, so he's kind of a reverse Kelden Warlord, which is an old card out of original revised ABUR. So yeah, he, so he gives that ability to all his creatures, which is, I think is called the Kelden ability in lore. So yeah, I, I think that will kind of work. He's pretty fragile. He's a 1-1. One, one. He doesn't buff himself, so I have to keep him safe. But I think it'll be a weird, unique deck. So that's what I'm leaning into right now. I like it. I like it a lot. I'm building my first flavor deck ever, and I'm kind of excited about it. I've been looking around for a long time to see what magic lore character really called to me if I wanted to build a Liliana deck, for example. But Grizzlebrand is Grizzlebrand, so I can't do him. A Liliana deck just isn't in the works for me there. So I was tinkering around looking through some of the lore characters, and I happened upon Mare Sill, who apparently in the magic story seals part of his soul inside of an enchanted ring. And I'm like, hmm, where else have I heard that before? So now I'm building a Marisil the Pretender deck as a Lord Voldemort deck, because he also puts part of his soul into a bunch of artifacts. Nerd. And I am really excited. Nerd. Oh, I'm a complete nerd, absolutely. <laughs> I'm just really excited to put Whisper Silk Cloak in there as the Invisibility Cloak, or to tap my Felwar Stone, which is to say my Sorcerer's Stone, to play the Elixir of Life, which is the Elixir of Immortality. I'm all types of excited. There's a lot of weird deep cuts you could probably do with that as well. Yeah, that's that's very cool. Yep. So there you have it, listeners. There's a person who plays Narset. There's a person who's trying to build Boros and a person who plays weird flavor decks. We, we got all your bases covered. Yeah, pretty much. Every, every, every player type. So moving on from these weird commanders that we're building, what's our topic this week, fellas? We got some top played commanders of all time, according to EDHREC.com. That's right. We're going to be looking at the top commanders of all time and trying to see if there are any trends that we notice between them, any reasons why these might be the particular most played commanders of all time. We're going to see whatever it is that we can find out about why they're so popular. Let's pull up our internet web browsers, Netscape Navigator. Oh, look, edhrec.com slash commanders. Look at all this information, guys. Yeah, you can go to EDHREC, and on the top tabs, you've got a bunch of different options. You can find individual cards, you can go through our articles, you can look at sets even, but there's also a Commanders tab, and you can see the top Commanders built either this week, this month, or the top Commanders of all time. We're going to go through the ones of all time. Dana, do you mind starting us off with what are the top Commanders of all time? Sure. So the list on EDHREC shows the top 21 Commanders of all time. Number one is Attracts Our Praetor's Voice. And I'll just do the top five here to get started. We have number two, Marin of Clan Neltoth. Number three, Brea, Ethereum Shaper. Number four, Aloro, Aegis Aesthetic. And number five, Nekizar, the Mind Razor. Yeah, and these guys have some really sick numbers, too. Atraxa currently shows up with 4,295 decks. In second place, as you mentioned, is Marin of Clan Neltoth. And she has quite the drop-off after that. It's at 3,064. And after that, we sort of stay around the... 3000 area or the high 2000s area but Atraxa that is a popular commander at over 4000 that is so many decks yeah it's, why might that be it's head and shoulders above anything else in the list yeah what makes her so appealing guys I mean there's a lot of things I think I, number one um I, I think Atraxa gets a lot of flack number one for being for being popular so people like to kind of bag on whatever the popular thing is and it's undoubtedly the most popular commander 
But I think one of the main reasons for that is you can build that deck a ton of different ways. Even just glancing at it, you can see that it makes a good Super Friends commander, or it makes a good plus one counters themed commander, or it makes a good minus one counters themed commander, or it works with Infect, or it works with Angel Tribal. You know, if you want to build around a keyword, it's got Death Touch and Vigilance. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do with that deck that might not look like the deck the person next to you is building. So while Atraxa has, you know, 4,000 plus decks on here, they're, might, they're, not, they're not the same deck. There's a lot of room for there being very different Atraxa decks in that breakdown. Yeah, she's a very versatile commander. So now I have a question for you. If versatility is what makes Atraxa so popular, is that versatility the same thing that we see in the other commanders, the top commanders of all time? Are they also just as versatile? Is that what makes them so popular too? Not even close, no. Like, the other ones are just... I mean, you, you talk about the, the next three, you have Marin, Brea, and Alaro. Those commanders are just the, the best at what they do. Like, if you just want to grind out value, Marin of Clan Neltoth is just like, there's nothing better than just sacrificing your stuff, getting it back, sacrificing more stuff, getting more stuff back. Like, that's what Marin does. Like, if you want to play like a grindy, you know, just drag everything out, you know, maybe play some stacks effects. Like, Marin's just the best head and shoulders. You know, it's only two colors, so it's very efficient mana-wise. You don't need an expensive mana base. If you want to play any graveyard synergy, you can't really go wrong with Marin. And Brea is just the best artifact commander. It's it's the four-color commander. It's the white, blue, black, red. So you have all the best artifact colors. Just everything kind of adds up with Brea. And she just she does a lot. She's kind of like a track, so there's just so many abilities. There's so much text on there. And they both just do so much for you. And then Aloro just is classic Esper control. Sit there, gain a bunch of life, and... Alora's been around for a long time, too. The, the crazy part about all this is, you know, Traxa, Marin, and Brea, those are all only a few years old, and they're already a good, what, 40% more Traxa decks than there are Aloro decks, and Aloro's in fourth. But Alora's just been around for a long time. That's that's the big thing. Just a very popular, very good commander to, just to gain life. And Nekazar has, I mean, he's the reason all those card wheel effects and everybody draw sevens. I mean, he's the reason a lot of those are expensive now. I think there's a little there's a little more diversity mixed in with those those other commanders too than that might be apparent on first blush. Um, I mean, yeah, the obvious route with Marin is just to go value town graveyard recursion. But like we you know we all know a guy at EDH Rec who writes who's got a relentless rats Marin deck. So I think there's a little more room to build there. I mean, there's Brea that is basically a copy of Shroom, but there's also Brea decks that are like eggs decks, and there's kind of a generic artifacts version of Brea. So I think there's a little more room to build in those commanders than maybe is apparent just glancing at them. I think they have some diversity built in there too in a way Atraxa does. Well, and not to mention Don, the creator of EDHREC, he had an Olero deck for a very long time that was actually just a mono black deck. Right. He just had Olero there strictly for the eminence ability of gaining two life every turn and then using all of his black cards like Toxic Deluge would use that life as an additional resource. So there is some versatility there, but I do think I kind of have to agree with Matt that these do seem to be the best at the thing they're supposed to be doing. Well, that definitely helps. A lot of these commanders are very specialized. Right. So Atraxa, for example, that was the first time that we had a, a committed super friends commander, one that could proliferate all of their loyalty counters. Marion, as you mentioned, she's very good at necromancy. She's kind of the best at what she does. So is Brea. So I can definitely see that these commanders are very appealing because they are so hyper-specialized. You're combining both those two things too. Like you have them being the best of the thing they do, but they also have the ability to diversify. So like it's not just one or the other. It's in, in those at least those top three commanders. There's both of those things. 
it's being the best at the, at the one thing if you want to do it, but it also has the ability to branch out. So that's that that's bringing a lot of people in to make those decks. Well, I want to say one thing too. I mean, just in the top six, if you take our our list that we went, you know, expand it by one to, to the top six, you get Yidris Maelstrom Wanderer. So three of the top six commanders of all time, you know, according to the site, are four color commanders, and just I think just having color access expands everything out quite a bit to what people are wanting to do too. I think there's there's really something to be said for you know three commanders from the, the same commander set, not the same deck, but just having four colors. That was something really new that people were asking for for a long time. So I think that popularity was just, you know, there was a lot of demand for those kind of commanders, no matter what they were going to do. So you bring up something interesting that I kind of want to compound on, I guess. In looking at the top commanders of all time, I cannot help but notice that they are all multicolored. We have Atraxa, who's four colors, who's missing red. We have Marin, who's two colors, being Golgari. We have Brea, who's missing green. Olaro, who's missing green and red. We have a lot of colors represented among the top commanders of all time. And I think that indicates something pretty important about the commander format. People like having diversity within their decks. They like being able to shore up the weaknesses of one color with another color. Well, seven of the top 10 are three colors. And then I actually went through uh, the, the top 21 on the list and, and counted color identity. And I was really surprised at how close it was. I mean, there's 12 decks that are green and white not just green and white, but have green and white in them. Um, and there's 12 that have red, 13 at black, 14 at blue. So the difference between the most popular color and the least popular color is two slots. Yeah, so that's really nice to see, actually, that all of the colors are being represented among the top commanders of all time. There is no weight towards one color over another. A lot of people will give red and white a hard time in Commander, for example, but it still seems like those colors are seeing quite a lot of play among the top commanders of all time. Yeah, one thing, just going off of what Dana said and just looking at it, uh, of those top 21, three are Mardu commanders. You have Kalia the Vast, you have Alicia who smiles at death, and you have Queen Marchesa. And like Mardu, like to me, just personally doesn't jump out. But like seeing that there's three different Mardu commanders that th- do three very different things, that was something that I thought was a little interesting too. So bringing it to something a little more basic, I suppose, I also couldn't help but notice among these top commanders, let's say we're just looking at the top 10 commanders, we have Atraxa, Marin, Brea, Olaro, Nikasar. You'll hear these names a lot throughout the entire podcast. But I can't help but notice that those top five all came from pre-constructed decks. If we extend to the top ten, then we also have Yidris, Kalia, Brago, Omnath, and Alesha. And that means that of the top ten, there are only three commanders that came from non-precon products. That's a pretty interesting metric to me. Yeah, I think the big thing that that attracts people to pre-con decks is you can buy the deck and you have the commander and you have an entire supported deck for them you know, that entire 99, and you only have to buy, like, maybe a card or two at a time, whereas once you get to those non-precon commanders, like Brago and, and Omnath and all that, you have to construct an entire 99 by yourself. There's no, here's a starter deck on some a few different things that you can do. You have to go all from scratch, all by yourself. So there's a little bit more brewing that goes in with it, a little more critical thinking just on, on the player's part, on the deck builder's part. And some people, they just kind of want a lot of the work done for them, and then they'll season it from there. So I think that's probably a big reason why pre-con commanders are, are a little more popular than you know pack commanders. I'm going to have to push back against you for that. I don't feel like people want their work to be done for them. I feel like this goes back to that hyper-specializing that you mentioned earlier about why Mm -hmm. Atraxa or Marin might be 
the the top commanders because they're the best at what they do. If we look at the three of the top 10 commanders, if we look at the three that don't come from precon products, we've got Brago, King Eternal, who blinks permanents that you control. So finally, we have a white-blue blink commander. There's also Rune, but he's green, and he can only blink creatures, whereas Brago can blink planeswalkers or artifacts. So that widens the scope of what that deck can do. Expanding beyond that, we've got Omnath, Locus of Rage, as number nine most built commander of all time and he's a dedicated landfall deck he makes a whole bunch of elemental tokens whenever you play lands and then at number 10 we have alesha who smiles at death who's a very aggressive mardu commander that plays with a lot of little creatures and i feel like that goes back to that specializing of what these commanders do they're able to be among the top commanders of all time even without the assistance of a pre-constructed deck because they're the best at the thing that they do and it's a very unique thing that they do as well I don't even know if it's the best at what they do. It's just they're the best, period. I mean, if, if I sit down across the table from somebody and you put out a deck that has these commanders as, you know, your general, with the exception of a Loro, nine of those 10 commanders are ones where my immediate thought is, okay, well, I just can't let that be in play or I'll lose the game. Like if, if I let these commanders sit out and do something, I'm going to lose. And a Loro, you can't control it because our Loro is going to be doing that same thing from the command zone for the most part. But for the rest of them, they are all just flat out strong commanders. Yeah, I, I agree with Dana. You know, they're, they're all just very powerful. And I, I, and I don't disagree with you, Joey. I, I think they are unique effects, too. I think there's a little bit of kind of what we all emphasize ourselves, a little bit of blend of all three of those out there kind of adding up to, to what makes these guys all as popular as they are. And I think the, the inverse of the strength is, is also there. There's not a lot of weaknesses necessarily in these commanders. Like when you sit down with some, you know, decks, you immediately can kind of figure out based on the colors of that commander what that deck can't do. So if you're sitting down with a Boros deck across from you, you're pretty sure it's not going to ramp very hard or it's not going to draw a lot of cards. Um, you sit down, you know, across from a mono red deck, you're like, well, it's not going to be able to deal with my enchantments. Looking at the color combinations on here, the only one that really has a blind spot is going to be Nekuzar, which can't deal with enchantments, but it's still a really aggressive deck. The rest of them don't have very much in the way of weaknesses. They are all color combinations that have abilities to deal with or do everything. Yeah, oh, That's a pretty interesting observation. I, I hadn't really considered that, that these are commanders that in particular can shore up a lot of weaknesses. That's That's pretty fascinating, actually. Yeah, and I think just going off of what Dana said, like, you see like a lot of decks, if they're not running one color, they're running another color that kind of does that well. Like if, if a lot of these decks, like you point out Nekusar, Nekusar is one of the only decks on this list that isn't running either green or white. And those two colors, like those are the go-to colors if you're trying to deal with just permanence in general. Like, you know, you have green to hit off like your naturalized effects, stuff like that. So, but then you have Alicia, you know, she's not playing green, but she's playing white to cover that base as well. Then black and red just to kind of play that color identity. Same with Omnath, you're not drawing a lot of cards, but you have that green in there. So you, you see a lot of different colors that kind of specialize. So it really takes a really powerful card like Nekuzar to make Grixis a top played commander with one of those glaring weaknesses that, that Dana mentioned. Well, and even Omnath, I was, I, that was one of the things I, th I thought of when I thought of Omnath. I was like, okay, well, Omnath is kind of weak you know, in terms of draw. But Omnath actually plays really well in Green's draw. Most of the bodies that Omnath makes are 5-5s. Five so Green tends to have things that care about size of creatures in terms of draw, whether it's Rishkar's Expertise or Soul's Majesty. But it also has the, the go-wide draw spells that draw you a card for each creature you control. And as a commander that makes tokens, Omnath plays pretty nicely with things like Schematic Revelation, too. So 
Omnath, even though, you know, red and green tend to maybe not be colors you think of in terms of being able to draw a lot of cards, the way that particular deck is built kind of does draw a lot of cards or can draw a lot of cards. So I have another question for you guys. Is there anything similar among the strategies of all of these top commanders that might tell us a little bit more about the nature of the commander format? Do you see anything noteworthy about these particular commanders that feels like they all have something in common? Not just their colors, not just that they came from precons, but specifically the way that they play when you sit down at the table. They're all creatures. <laughs> and for that, that, see, that's why you get fired by Jason a lot, Matt. That's, you're not wrong. You're, we value your insight so much. But for real, is there anything, that, any commonality that you notice between them? The, the one note I have, and I, I don't know if it's it's not really an apparent thing, but like looking at these commanders, I feel like they're all ones that a new player can sit down and play effectively. But they're also commanders that an advanced player can sit down and find ways to also be challenged to squeak out like extra advantages in a way that maybe a simpler commander like... And I'm struggling to even think of a good example off the top of my head, but, you know, Sigarda Host of Hurons, which is a deck I have, but, like, I play that Sigarda deck the same way today as I played it three years ago, whereas if you're playing a Nekizar deck or you're playing Brea, as you get better as a player, those decks are going to probably kind of scale with you. So I think they're, they're decks that are playable and appealing to a maybe a newer player, and they also offer a lot to an advanced player. I like that. I think another trend that I notice among these is that there seems to be a consistent amount of gradual value where you don't have to put in, I guess, too much effort to make these commanders very, very powerful. Atraxa, for example, you actually don't even need to attack with her for her to give you a benefit. She'll proliferate at the beginning of your end step, which means that you can actually sort of sit back and wait passively as the game progresses and still accrue value. The same is true of Marin, who also triggers on your end step and can revive creatures for you. She continuously provides you with a value engine. Even Brea can sort of sit back, relax, and doesn't have to do anything until she is called upon to act, because then she can sacrifice artifacts and, and do something more. You've also got the classic Olero, who's literally sitting back in his chair and just slowly gaining life for you. I feel like a lot of these commanders have the ability to just sort of take it easy. They don't strike me as being hyper-aggressive, is I guess the way I would say it. So that seems to tell me a bit about the nature of the commander format. People don't like running out the gate, hit the ground running, and immediately attacking everyone. They're sort of expecting a long game, and therefore these commanders are very popular because they reward you continuously over the course of a game that takes even an hour to play. Well, I think there, there is some aggression with these commanders, but it's not just aggression. So like, I think Alesha wants to come out and punch you in the face pretty quickly, but if Alesha doesn't win that game immediately, it's still a perfectly effective commander on turn 10 or turn 15. Like, it's still going to be doing things that provide you with value. I think that's the case with all these. Even when they're ones that maybe are a little bit more aggro, they're not only aggro. Yeah, such as Kali of the Vast. That's another Mardu commander. And the purpose of her is definitely to hit the ground running. She's currently showing up with a 2078 decks, and she's the seventh most popular commander of all time. She's a four mana 2-2 with flying that wants to attack to immediately, for free, put an angel, demon, or dragon creature from your hand onto the battlefield, also attacking. And that's really great to get an aggressive start. She's very fast. But in the later game, when you don't really need to cast her, you can still cast all of those angels, demons, and dragons. So I, I think you're right there, Dana, that there is that... Even if they are kind of aggressive, they still have that late game potential to them. That might be a way to put it. Yeah, because, I mean, Omnath, all you do half the game is just ramp, ramp. You ramp a little more, and then you ramp a little more. So even if you don't get your early rush of elementals going on early, you never have a dead card in Omnath. I have an Omnath Locus of Rage deck 
And it's great because there, there's not really a dead card because either you ramp and you cast Omnath again or you ramp with Omnath out already and you get more tokens to keep attacking, which, like you guys said, you know, gives it some longevity. And Kalia, if you don't get to cast Kalia anymore, you're still casting Balefire Dragons, which still are really good. So even if it's kind of like a Sadisi Brood Tyrant that might take a little bit of setup, you know, I think there's a good mix. You know, there, you, know you can play Aloro, Control, whatever you want to do, Nekasar Combos. I think there, you know, for any any you know type of player you are, any type of deck you want to play, whatever strategy, there's a commander in this top 21 list that you know you're going to be able to find something to do with. Yeah, a lot of these commanders seem to me at least to be accidentally good. Omnath, you mentioned all you have to do is play either cards or lands, and things are going to go your way. Nikusar is fantastic because all that you have to do is have people draw cards. You don't even need to cast the spells for that to still be a presence on the battlefield. So that, that's a trend that I notice among these these top commanders. Yeah, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I kind of want to move into a new segment, boys. Let's go head-to-head and pick some cards and have the others guess which might be more popular than the other. I'm going to start us off here. Since we're talking about the top commanders of all time, I'm going to talk about cards in the number one most played deck of all time, Atraxa. I'm curious if you guys can guess this. Which is more popular in an Atraxa deck? Inexorable Tide, the enchantment that lets you proliferate whenever you cast a spell, or Contagion Engine, the artifact that lets you proliferate twice? It's a good one. Man. Thank you very much. I don't remember if... I don't think Contagion Engine was in the deck, but man, I think Tide might have been. I don't recall, though. I don't think it was, because Inexorable Tide, I, th- I think, was in the Master set right okay. around when it came out. Because I, I, I think I have a couple foils, like, casually laying around. Um, man, I don't know. I, I, I'm going to guess Tide is in more decks, but I, I don't even have really a great reason for that. They both are, you know, relatively new cards. They've, Tide's had more printings, I think. It was, I know it's been reprinted, and I don't think Contagion Engine is at a reprint. So that's, I guess, one more reason I'll go with Tide. So I think it's going to be Tide. It's going to be in more decks. Matt, what about you? I think Contagion Engine, just because there's a little bit of removal built into it. So you can, you can kind of let your token buddy at the table establish. You can play Contagion Engine and then wipe their board real quick. I'll go with Contagion Engine. I, I could see it going either way because both are very good cards in that deck. But I think I'll give Contagion Engine the, the nod. Yeah, so it is a very close race here. But with 6%, per- 6% ahead of its competition, Inexorable Tide shows up in 56% of Atraxa decks. Contagion Engine is in a solid 50%, but Inexorable Tide does clinch it. And that sort of illustrates, I guess, to me what I mean by that sit back and relax and let these commanders do some work for you feeling that I get from the top commanders, where this is a card that will accidentally accrue you value even if you don't have to do a whole a whole lot. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see that with that. That's fair. Yeah, that said, they're both fantastic, and there's a reason that they're so close. There's a reason that they're both in over 50% of Atraxidex, because in Atraxidex, if you can proliferate more, it's darn good to do so. Yeah, and it, it, and it doesn't even matter what kind of counters you're putting on stuff, too. That, that's why when you look at the top cards, you know, it's kind of su- it's such a mishmash. Right, I mean, that works with plurif- it works with plus one, it works with minus one, it works with poison. Planeswalkers. Works with plain, planeswalkers, right. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can build Atraxa, and those two cards work in a lot of the ways you can build Atraxa. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, Matt, do you have two cards for us? I do have two cards for us. So I'm looking a little bit further down the list. I'm not looking at the number one deck. I'm, I'm going down to a card that I think is going to get played a lot more just because it was in the Masters 25 set that just came out recently. Um, so Prosh, Sky Raider of Kerr decks. Go down a little bit and I've got two cards for you. I've got Dragon Broodmother, which is a, what is it, seven drop? Yeah, no, six drop. Three red, a green, and two versus Dragon Lair Spider, which is also a six drop. What do you guys think is going to be played more in Prosh decks? So the Dragon Broodmother is the one that creates a Devour token on each of your turns, but the Dragon Lair Spider creates a 1-1 one, one insect. Whenever they cast a spell. Whenever an opponent casts a spell, that's yep. right. Yep, so Dragon Broodmother only gets one per turn, but it has Devour 2, and then Dragon Lair Spider just makes a 1-1 one, one every time they cast a spell. Uh, my money would be on the Spider. I feel like that has a greater chance of giving you more tokens for Prosh to eat up. I'm going to tend to agree with that. I know one of them was a also like a game day promo or something, but for the life of me, I can't recall which of the two it was. I, I think it was the Broodmother that had okay. the, the special promo. Um, and, it, and it was also, I'm not sure if it was that one. One of them was relatively pricey at one point in time. I'm not sure if it still is, but one of them was like over $10. Yeah, Broodmother, according to um, our affiliate link going out, um, is $13.99 retail for a Dragon Broodmother. Because I bought... I believe it was just the the promo printing and then the the Alara uh, actual set that it was in that was a mythic. And I know Dragon Lair Spider's been printed a few times. So I'll, I'll go with Spider number one because it's more available, it's cheaper, and I think it's easier for the average player to understand what it does versus Devour, which can be really strong, but I think it requires you to be a little bit maybe more advanced to utilize. So I, I will go with the Spider. So you both are actually wrong then. Nice. Ah, dang. Wow, Dragon right. Broodmother. I was surprised too when I was digging. That's why I thought it was it was pretty interesting. I was even telling you guys before the cast I had a pretty good one. So Dragon Broodmother is played in 17% of Prosh decks uh, and 3,100 decks overall, whereas Dragon Lair Spider is only in 14% of Prosh decks with just under 2,500 decks. So even though Dragon Broodmother is almost a $15 card, you know, much older, way less copies... It's played in more decks overall and more in Prosh decks, which I thought was kind of weird. I know, you know, some Prosh decks go deep into, you know, sacrificing your permanence for value. But Dragon Lair Spider, I agree with both of you guys. That's why I thought it was crazy. Because Dragon Lair Spider, you know, you play against a blue opponent. I mean, you're going to get a lot of tokens. On the same token, though, I think that tells us something pretty interesting about the way that Prosh would like to to play out. Prosh isn't really concerned with the actions of his opponents he's gonna do his thing so he doesn't have time to wait around for them to cast spells because prosh can food chain out a combo and just destroy the board from there or even if you're not playing food chain prosh wants to do stuff on his terms i think that's the sense that we're getting there and it's good to point out prosh because not only was he just reprinted in masters 25 but he's also as you mentioned just a little further down the screen on the top commanders of all time he's the 15th most played commander of all time so it's good to know a little bit more about him Yep. He's also probably not the most casually friendly commander, so in thinking about it, that does make sense a little bit that maybe the more advanced card would appear in that deck. I, I, I can see that now. Yeah. All right, so Dana, what's yours? Okay, so this isn't about a particular commander. This is just two cards. We're going head-to-head, but I thought they were kind of relevant here since seven of our top ten most popular commanders are three-color, and these are two cards that I would probably put in almost any three-color deck. 
and they are City of Brass versus Mana Confluence. I like it. Classic. I would totally agree that I would want to put these in a three-color deck or more. And, and I was generally, like, I didn't even really have a guess, so I, I knew I wanted to compare them. Before I looked, I tried to kind of, in my head, go over the pros and cons. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious what you guys come up with here. Right, so both of these lands can tap for any color of mana, but they will hurt you. City of Brass does it whenever it becomes tapped, and Mana Confluence, you actually have to pay the life. That can get interesting around, I don't know, you can respond to the City of Brass trigger, for example, but you can also turn Mana Confluence into a swamp, such as with Urborg, and then you don't have to pay life to activate a mana-producing ability. It's pretty interesting. I'm probably going to go with Mana Confluence because I think Urborg is also quite a popular card, and so people like using that trick to evade having to pay life to get their mana. I'm going to go against the grain there. I'm, I'm going to guess City of Brass just because it's such an old card. It's just one of those iconic cards that people think of you know, throughout all of Magic. And Mana Confluence is, to Dana's point, on my, my guess, it's a little bit pricey. It's, I mean, it's pushing 10 bucks or so probably, maybe a little bit north now. Whereas City of Brass, it's been printed so many times, it's it's fairly cheap. I'm going to go with City of Brass. So I'll, I'll give you the, the stats here quickly before I give you the numbers. Um, City of Brass has been printed 11 times. The most give us the stats before you give us the numbers? Before I give you the, yeah. <laughs> before I give you the answer, <laughs> I should say. Um, so 11 printings for City of Brass, most recently in a modern event deck. But it wasn't standard legal since 2004. So it hasn't been something that people have been seeing in their binders or in packs they crack for, for you know, 15 years or so. Now, Confluence has only been printed twice, but it was in an expedition fairly recently, and Journey to Nyx was only, you know, four years ago. So there's people that have that in a binder sitting around, maybe in ways they don't for City of Brass. But the, the advantage is not a large one. City of Brass is in... 23,752 decks. Mana Confluence is in 24,900 oh. decks. So about 1,200 decks difference, but I mean, it's they're still both in so many printings, it's only a few percentage points between the two of them. Yeah, and I think this kind of goes back to people like redundancy, so even, you know, it's a corner case scenario that separates them. I mean, if you want one five-color land, you're probably going to want another one. If you want a four, I mean, and it goes back to when we were going through, you know, Three of the top six commanders were four-color commanders. It takes a lot of mana fixing in City of Brass and Mana Confluence. Even though you have to pay life, it doesn't affect you so much in a 40-life format. So, I mean, it, getting all your colors from one land is pretty good. Yeah, the longer that I've played this game, the more I've realized that color fixing is deathly important. It can cost you the game. I was actually just about to ask if you guys would play both, or if there's any situation wherein you would only want to run one but not the other. I don't think there's very many situations where you would only want one. I think if you want, if you want one, you want two. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And and I would run both just full stop in a three color deck. I don't think there's a situation where I wouldn't run them both. I mean, I, I'd run them both side by side in any three or more color deck. I think the only instance that I can think of where I'd want City of Brass but not Mana Confluence would actually be in a mono white deck for Darien, King of Kieldor, because whenever you're dealt damage, as with the City of Brass, he'll make a token for you. Yeah, that makes sense. It's true. All right, so let's get back to the main topic. We're looking at the top commanders of all time, and I have a question for you guys. What commanders are you surprised aren't among the top of all time? Is there something that you feel is missing from the top 10 or the top 21, as we see on the page? Um, when I thought about this, I wasn't really thinking of like cards that deserve to be there maybe so much as I thought, oh, I was surprised this card wasn't in there just based on power level or something. And the first one that jumped out at me was Xur the Enchanter. 
Zer's dirt cheap to buy right now. He was just reprinted in one of the Modern Masters. So, you know, he's like a 50-cent card. He's ridiculously strong, and he's ridiculously easy. Easy to play, I should say. So I, I was kind of surprised Zer wasn't in the top 21 just because that seemed to fulfill a lot of the criteria that the rest of the commanders in the top 20 filled. Makes sense. For, for me, the, the thing that kind of sticks out is how quickly a commander can get replaced. Because, you know, Marin isn't old, but she's not a new card either. But she's still the second most played commander of all time. But you look at kind of the former best Golgari commander, and as, if you're you know trying to accrue value over the game, and, and Glissa the Trader, I have a Glissa deck, and I know Dana does too. And actually, we, we talk about this fairly often. It's how, how different they play and how different they are just in the 99. But Glissa's nowhere to be seen in the top commanders just because she got replaced so hard, so fast by Marin. And just, you get all those broken commanders, you know, that just outdo each other. You know, the best rug commander in Riku for a little bit got replaced gradually by Animar, even though I think they were in the same set. But I remember Riku being super popular early on, but then got replaced so it's just how, how quickly some commanders can get pushed out just by something coming in. And I'm, I was just a little surprised, and you know, I've always kind of thought this, and you know, there's so many pre-con commanders, why aren't there more commanders that come in standard legal sets or in just in, in packs in general? Yeah, that's a big one for me. I'm surprised that the stuff that we get in standard isn't as popular as the stuff from pre-cons, because while the pre-con commanders are very powerful, I feel like standard has some amazing powerhouses as well. I mean, Omnath, Locus of Rage, he's just the tip of the iceberg, really, because there's also the other version of Omnath, for example. He's a mono-green menace that can grow to enormous heights, and that's just as exciting for me. I happen to have a crew fix deck, and I always look at it and wonder, should I turn this into an Omnath deck? Because holding onto mana and punching people sounds like a ton of fun it's just it is interesting to me that the uh the standard commanders the ones we get in normal expansions that they don't see as much play that one is pretty fascinating to me on that same note i'm just as intrigued that something like animar can get as high as it does when the trend that we usually see is that the secondary or tertiary commander in a pre-con deck doesn't end up being a top commander of all time it's almost always the headliner that's pretty fascinating as well and i feel like a lot of the secondary commanders much like animar deserve the spot over the headliner commander that came in their deck. As an example, I would, I guess I would say Karlov of the Ghost Council is more interesting than Daxos, for example. And while Karlov does have more decks on the website than Daxos at the moment, I also feel like that's such a great life gain commander that he could have been among the top commanders of all time because he is such quintessential life gain. But that goes to another thing that you mentioned as well, Matt, and that's that these commanders are very good at what they do. These top commanders are very, very good. And we already do have a kind of black-white with the addition of blue life gain commander in the form of Olaro. So to be a top commander, it does seem as though you need to fill your niche and to do it first. And that will help get you to top commander status. Well, I think it's also important to note, I mean, these are just statistics. So like there's no like decision making put into what the data is. It's just data, right? And that data can be tweaked by variables out there beyond our control. So yes, Atraxa and Marin and Brea are the top three most popular commanders by the amount of decks out there where they are the general. But that doesn't like take into consideration things like commander being a growing format. And it's a continuously growing format that seems to be getting more popular every year. Well, one of the things that kind of implies is there's new players coming in and new players are probably going to be buying pre-cons. That's just the, an easy way to enter the format. So I think that is going to skew the numbers a little bit. That's not really the pre-con effect necessarily so much as it is just the new player effect. And I think 
as time passes and we look back on, on the numbers or or looking at the numbers in general in maybe five or six or seven years when maybe the amount of people playing commander has stabilized, I bet that'll be a little bit different because at that point in time, you don't have people that are coming into the game skewing things so much as you have people making decisions based on what they want to play. I, th- I think, there, yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. Just, I mean, you have a new player coming into the game and like I was kind of saying earlier, with pre-con commanders, you have the deck to start and you can kind of tweak it from there. If you're a new player, say you open a pack and you get a Locust God, I mean, you got all of a sudden, I mean, man, I need 99 other cards. Probably, okay, probably like 60 because you're going to play a bunch of basics probably. But, I mean, you have to start a whole new deck and you don't have that collection built up like established players do. And I was thinking, yes, we're talking about the all-time commanders. If you scroll up a little bit just to the top commanders over the week and the month, you see a little bit more recency on there. You know, if you scroll up just a little bit to this month, you're going to see Animar, Prosh, some of those recently, you know, Masters 25 legendaries. And then you see, you know, a lot more commanders that don't come in pre-cons. Uh, outside of a few, like you have Edgar Markov, who still gets played a lot just because Ixalan block had a lot of vampires, so people are still excited for that. But yeah, if you zoom up and look more recent, instead of that big picture, you know, all time, then is when you, you know, you start to see those standard set commanders getting played. Just there's so much ground to make up, though, as, as we talked about. There's over 4,000 Atraxa decks. So sure, there were 25 Scarab God decks made so far this month. You got to do that a long time without getting replaced by something better in order to catch up to those top 21 commanders that we're talking about. And I think we're talking about new players coming in too, one factor that, you know, I don't think it's a huge deal, but I think it's worth noting that these are all maybe, I would say, aesthetically pleasing cards. Like if you are a new player and you're looking at a shelf with a bunch of precons on it, and one of your choices is an angel horror with, you know, death, touch, and lifelink and all the keywords, that's a pretty attractive thing to grab if you don't know much about the game. I think a lot of these commanders in that top list are just cool-looking cards that catch a player's eye in a way that maybe, you know, not that Brago isn't popular, but like Brago isn't necessarily an intuitive thing to a new player. Atraxa certainly is. Marin bringing stuff back from the graveyard makes absolutely new sense to a new player. So I think a lot of these are things that maybe jump out to new eyes in ways that some commanders don't. I don't know, man. Sadisi Brood Tyrant is ugly as sin, <laughs> but she's she's the 11th most played well, commander of all time. And, and it's not entirely about the art in the card. I mean, I, th- I think that does also make a difference. But I think just looking at Sadisi, you understand intuitively what you're going to do with that deck. It's something that jumps out at you. It's something that you can make happen. Yeah, Sadisi, I don't know. I have a grudge against Sadisi. I have a grudge against a lot of commanders. We'll probably uncover all of that during this podcast. But Sadisi, she's Sultai, and I'm kind of mad at her because she took over my bay, which is the Mimeoplasm. That was my first deck, and uh, he, answering my own question from before, the Mimeoplasm is one that I'm really sad not to see among the top commanders of all time because he's just so good. He came in the first commander product line, and he's that Sultai ooze that can eat two creatures from graveyards, become a copy of one, and get bigger equal to the power of the other one. It's just such a fresh take on graveyard interaction that I'd never seen before. I love making a copy of Avacyn that happens to also be a 30-30. I love doing stuff like that. But then CDC came around, and ah, I'm just mad at her. So it's sort of segueing into my next question, like me and my grudge against CDC, is there any commander that is among the top commanders that you don't think deserves to be there? Hmm. I mean, t- uh, top all time. I'm kind of surprised to see like Carador still stick around when Marin is the most popular. I know you get White in there and you get Protean Hulk combo and stuff like that, but I think Carador is kind of clinging on a little bit. Carador being at number 16 of all time, just by yeah, the way. At, yep, number 16. 
I have a buddy who plays, you know, a really tuned competitive Carador, so I get to play against it all the time. But I'm kind of surprised just because, yeah, like I said, Marin just does everything so well, and it, you know, you don't have to cast; it just happens because you have your experience counters. And I was really surprised to see the group hug Kaneos and Tiro still in the top fifteen. Oh man, speaking of grudges, we're getting into Dana's grudges Ooh. now. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm not a fan of group hug at all, so that's on my list. Absolutely, of one that I kind of wish wasn't there. Yeah, and, and I'm just surprised to see it so high just because, I mean, there's a lot of players who think like you do, Dana. You know, why do I want to help out other people? It's not really an intuitive thing. You have to really have a, a specific goal in mind when you build a group hug deck. Sometimes that goal doesn't involve winning, be that as it may. I'm kind of surprised to see a group hug deck there. But then Saskia from the same set as all the other four color commanders is not part of that just because there's no blue in it. So it's, it's kind of weird to see the group hug deck, but then the no blue deck doesn't show up. Well, that's an actually, that's an interesting point. It might speak to the thing that I was mentioning earlier. Saskia currently shows up in 1,625 decks, but that's not enough to clinch her into the top commanders of all time status, whereas Kaneos and Tiro, Yidris Maelstrom Wielder, Brea Ethereum Shaper, and Attracts a Praetor's Voice, those all do show up. All of the four color commanders from Commander 2016 product are in the top commanders of all time, but Saskia isn't. And she's the only one, I would argue, that is the hyper-aggressive She's the one that goes out immediately, hits the ground running, and punches people, but she doesn't show up as popularly, and I think that that's pretty telling. It's not just that she's missing the color blue, which, sure, it's a good color, but it's also that it's a strategy that in multiplayer games, people are a little reticent to actually try and engage with. I think it speaks to the stereotype that some competitive players and 60-card players might have about commander players that they just want to play Battle Cruiser and everybody do their big dumb things. And that's why Saskia, commander who you know wants to be aggressive, wants to turn creatures sideways really quick, may not be as popular. I think it kind of speaks to that stereotype just a little bit. Well, I think Saskia also, it's not really five decks that are competing for a slot. It's four decks and one deck. Like the name I've, I've just, I just dropped the name. Um, Kineos and Tiro isn't really competing with the other four decks because it does a very unique thing in being a hug deck. So basically, Saskia is competing for combat damage slots with the other three damage commanders. So like you have one kind of off to the side that isn't really competing with anything. If you want to play group hug, that's the one commander you're picking. Whereas if you want to play a damage dealing commander, well, then that's what Saskia is competing with is the other three. That's a good point. Going back to the uniqueness of each of these commanders and the fact that they feel a, a very specific niche. Saskia has a lot of competition in that area, such as with Alesha, who smiles at death, which is at number 10. That, that's a pretty good angle as well. So, Dana, am I to take it still that Kaneos and Tiro is what you would demote from top commander status? or You know, it, at least it does a unique thing. The one that I would demote is Narset. I think Narset teaches people bad habits. I've seen a lot of people that play Narset as one of their first decks because it's pretty easy mode, and then they struggle to play a commander that requires you to actually play magic. <laughs> wow. and, I, and I'm not like, I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely being bombastic when I say that. Like, I've literally seen people that play Narset when they have to go play a game where their commander isn't just magically untouchable, and they don't just magically get to throw seven drops into play without having to do anything they struggle. So I think it's a, it's a deck that isn't fun to play against, number one. And number two, for newer players especially who are playing it, it teaches them bad habits when it comes to building decks and playing decks. Matt, I can't help but feel like he's thrown some shade <laughs> I, I'm away. really not, because like, I, I would bet none, That's of, fine. I, none of that probably applies to Matt, but I think it applies to other players. <laughs> it's okay. You hate Matt for his <laughs> set. You hate me for my Kaneos and Tiro of Melita's deck. I get it. I get it, man. You just don't like us. We're just throwing hands this episode. We're, we're getting aggressive. I had to speak up about K&T. <laughs> but no, it's true. Like I, I do agree with Dana, though. Like A lot of people just kind of autopilot. 
I think Narset suffers, like, if there's a deck that people just copy-paste the top-played cards from EDH rec, I think that Narset is probably the most autopilot, not just with how you play the deck, but how you build the deck. Because you see it, you're like, oh, I'm just going to play Time Stretch. The game, all right, we win. Like, I think I've changed at least a card or two with every set that's come out for a while, whether it's like Swarm Intelligence or Sunbird's Invocation or a couple Planeswalkers, stuff like that. So I've been changing mine up as, as we go. But a lot of people, I think, with, with Narset specifically, to Dana's point, are just kind of mindless. Yep, here's my deck. I'm going to win with Karn and be boring, blah. So... Yeah, I'm just glad you guys didn't razz me for Azuri. Well, it's we, too easy. <laughs> we're already, yeah, we're we're pretty deep into the podcast by now. We we want to get that out of the way early. I don't know. I feel like as long as we're talking about the top commanders of all time, I should mention that if I am going to demote any card, not even just from the status of being a top commander of all time, but from the game, it would have to be Azuri Claw of Progress. And you have some real, like, serious I, uh, give, give us, rage issues. I really do. So Yeah, give us your Reader's Digest version. So I'm pretty famous among the other EDH rec writers for having just unbridled rage when it comes to Azuri Claw of Progress. He's the 18th most built commander of all time. He currently has 1,756 decks to his name. Dude, I just cannot deal. Oh, I cannot deal with Azuri. Like, so for context, dear listener, the reason that I hate Azuri is because to me, he feels like the best red-white commander that has ever been designed. We all lament that Boros never gets a lot of love in this format. A lot of people will say that Boros can't do very well. And we all disliked, or at least a lot of us disliked, Kalemni, Disciple of Iroas, who came in the same cycle of decks as Azuri, because she was an aggro commander in colors that already had a lot of other aggro options. And it felt weird that Kalemni would be this commander that wants you to play big creatures. And it drives me insane that people will dislike Kalemni, but then build 1756 Azuri decks because Azuri is doing what Kalemni should be able to do. Azuri. Oh, man. Okay. <sighs> Joey, why don't you just tell the youths to get off your lawn, go back to sipping on your sweet tea on your rocking chair on the porch. Okay, so what does Azuri do? Azuri gives you experience counters whenever you play creatures with power two or less. That is not a green-blue thing. That is a thing that red and white do. I think Azuri is a nice Simic take on Alicia who smiles at death. They're caring about small creatures... That's in exactly a the thing. Alesha who, Alesha who smiles at death proves that Mardu are the colors that care about creatures with power two or less. Why is green or blue dabbling with that at all? I don't care that he puts plus one counters. Plus one counters is a very simic thing, sure. But the trigger for him to get experience should not be power two or less. That should have been a thing that Kalemni can do. You can give them different payoffs for their experience counters later. But just from the off, they gave the wrong abilities to the wrong colors. And that's why we have, uh, we talked about Masters 25 earlier, just like that's why we have Imperial Recruiter or Recruiter of the Guard. Those are red and white, and they go search for tiny creatures, because that's what those colors do. That's why we have things like every single Elspeth ever, or Deploy to the Front, or Storm Herd, or Raise the Alarm, or Secure the Wastes, Monastery Mentor. You're building tokens, and they're white. <laughs> like, that's what that color does. That's why we have Breakthrough the Line, which is a red enchantment that makes creatures with power two or less unblockable, because that's what those colors do. Whereas green, green cares about playing big creatures and so does blue because it's got all those sea serpents and stuff like green and blue getting tiny stuff what what is Joey, that you're not you when you're hungry go get go get your snickers show you'll me be a, all right show me on the azuri where the sage of hours touched you uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all i keep thinking uh, 
Joey's peepaw for the the podcast episode today earned it earned his grumpy stripes. I, that, you know, that's another thing though. I feel Sage of Hours came out the same year as Azuri Claw of Progress, and I feel like there should have been some communication to maybe not have an infinite combo come out in the same year with a single commander. It just it it smacks of putting a Triskelion in a pre-constructed Mikaios the Unhallowed deck. I'm just I'm not about that. And and okay, and and one last thing. Just one last thing. One Some last. Azuri's, one last. And then Some you're of Azuri's done. best enablers are things like Avenger of Zendikar and Hornet Queen. But those, because they give you a bunch of tokens, which will give you a bunch of experience counters, right? But those are creatures that would fulfill Kalemni's, you have to play big creatures to get experience condition. Because that's what green does. I get that everyone wants to put a bunch of plus one counters in their Azuri deck onto their Geyer Sage. But there's a reason that the green-blue mechanic is evolved. Because it's asking you to play big creatures. It is the worst flavor fail. It is a complete color pie break. It is worse than Beast Within. It is a bigger color pie break than Chaos Warp. That commander is trash, and I don't want him to be in the top commanders of all time. All right, there's your one. You're done. Feel strongly about this. You'll get over it. Alrighty, as long as we're all willing to move on to a new segment, I promise I'll calm down. Let's challenge Usa. some statistics. Usa, Matt, Joey. Matt, if you don't mind giving me some time, do you <laughs> mind starting us off in this segment? Yeah, so I'll, I got a I got a card for everybody here. So I've I was looking through speaking of the Mardu commanders when we were kind of doing some research. Um, I was looking at Queen Marchesa and thinking about some newer cards that might have wanted to go in there because I have an Edgar deck that I talked about a little bit before. But some of those cards that, you know, I kind of cut from the vampires itself, uh, what did I want to do with them? You know, now they have been cut. I found Disrupt Decorum and I found out that Disrupt Decorum, and let me, let me pull the card up for you guys real quick. But it's played in 41% of Queen Marchesa decks. It's plus 15% synergy, which actually kind of blew my mind a little bit because it's played in just under 1,200 decks. But um, about 36% of red decks since this card has come out is playing Disrupt Decorum, which I thought was a lot. So what the card does, it's a four mana sorcery. It's two and two red. Goad all creatures you don't control. So if you don't remember what goad does... Goad is, until you're in a turn, a creature that has been goaded has to attack the next combat, if able, and attack a player other than you. So if you're playing in a four-player pod and you cast Disrupt Decorum as Queen Marchesa, those other three players have to attack that next turn, but they can't attack you. So you're just starting, you know, you think of the meme with the raccoon that says, dance, puppets, dance. That's what this card does. It is the most political card ever. And if you're playing Queen Marchesa, chances are, you know, in Mardu Colors, you're not drawing a ton of cards. Yes, you have black, but you really want that Monarch token. You want you want to be the Monarch. And Disrupt Decorum, make sure you go, a, a, you know, a turn cycle, nobody else gets to take that from you. you. You're making sure people are attacking somebody else. You're messing up the board dynamics. It's it's really a chaos card when you think about it because you're you're messing everything up for everybody else but yourself. And it gives you a turn, too, if you just want to make, make sure... Everyone taps their creatures, and then you can go and finish off the job next turn, too. You're able to do that. And so I think, even though it is played at a decent clip at 41%, I think dang near 75% of Queen Marchesa decks probably want to be playing Disrupt Decorum. I feel like someone cast Disrupt Decorum on me every time I hear the words Azuri Claw of Progress. Probably. You, you do start brawling with yourself. I think that's a good call for this deck. Because I've seen a few Marchesa decks that are running, you know, the usual propaganda kind of suite of cards. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ghostly Prison in this case. And with those cards, the problem is if you are the obvious target, people will just not attack if they can't afford to attack you. 
with Disruptive Quorum, you're still forcing them to attack someone. So it's much harder for the table to decide to not hurt each other since you're the threat. They kind of still have to attack one another. You know, sure, they can minimize that in ways, but it's much more difficult than it is with a ghostly prison where you can just say, well, I'm just not going to attack anyone since I can't hit you. And when you think about it, it's it's kind of a red fog. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. really, because you're you're making sure people aren't attacking you. Nobody's dealing damage to you. You're just making sure it happens to other people. So I really like Disruptive Quorum. I'm kind of excited to try it out in some other decks. But I thought it was something that, you know, only 41% and Queen Marchesa, in, at least in, you know, the EDHRX Slack channel, is kind of known as like the political commander. And this is kind of the political, you know, sorcerer that came out in the past year or two. So, yeah. I, I, Definitely a powerful card. I really like Wrath of Goad. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a great name for it. All right, if people don't mind me going next after I've alienated everyone for talking bad about Azuri. Did, did the steam finish coming out of yours? I just, you can't complain that Boris doesn't get nice things when Simic is eating up pieces of its <laughs> what, color pie. What's, what, challenge some stats, Joey. <laughs> All righty, so my card will be an Omnath, Locus of Rage. It's specifically a land. A lot of lands get overlooked, but when you're in a landfall deck, it's important to keep an eye out on what they are. This one in particular is the card Ghost Town. It's a simple land that produces a colorless mana, but it has the weird activated ability of paying zero to return it to its owner's hand. But you can only use that ability during another person's turn, not during your own. So you can't return it to your hand and then play it. And if you have, for example, an exploration, then return it to your hand and play it again. You can't get multiple landfall effects off of that. It has to be bounced on another person's turn. But as long as you're doing that, as long as you're remembering to bounce that land during any other person's turn, that's going to keep Omnath with a pretty fresh hand of lands to give him more elemental tokens. In my experience playing Omnath, he runs out of lands in his hand, which means he has to try desperately to draw a lot more cards, which can be tough if people keep destroying all of your creatures, because Green's draw relies upon having a lot of creatures. So having a land like Ghost Town helps make sure that you'll always have a land in hand to get more elementals. I dig it. I, I play Ghost Town in my Omnath Locus of Rage deck, and it's really, really good. It's nice because, you know, if you're playing any effects that will blow up your own lands and stuff like that, you know, I, some people will play like Jokalops and stuff like that. You know, you can dodge that, you know, those Armageddon effects. I like it a lot. Oh, that's also pretty useful as well. Yeah. Just it's in 23% of Omnath decks, and I think that's way too low. The card is like 50 cents, if that. So it's definitely a good choice for all of you Omnath players. Yeah, it's a, it's an old, old card. It's from Tempest, Weatherlight, something like that. Te it's, Tempest. So it's, it's pretty old. 21 years old. It was out in 1997. So we've not seen God. it. And there's only one printing. So we have not seen it since 1997. Magic cards are older than the people playing them now. So weird. I mean, I run it in my Mina and Den deck for the same reason. It's a landfall trigger. And in that deck where I have a commander who gives me two landfalls, mm -hmm. I run a lands even faster than you would in Omnath. So it's even more valuable to me in that deck. And talking about land destruction, like I don't run mass land destruction in that deck, but I run from the ashes, which destroys all non-basic lands. Mm -hmm. And I run from, and that's just for, because one of the things about from the ashes is you can replace the lands with basics from your library. So I run from the ashes for additional landfall triggers, but I can also, on someone else's turn, if I know I'm going to from the ashes on my turn, I can bounce that back and have it saved for when I eventually destroy the basics or the non-basics and then play more basics. So it, it works great in that deck as well. Yeah, I don't think you need to have like wooded foothills or other expensive fetch lands in order to play a successful Omnath deck. You can find budget options like Ghost Town and it'll do a lot of work for you. Mm -hmm. Dana, what's your card this week? My card, um, I went with an Aloro deck, because he's one of the top five most popular commanders. And the card I picked is Hatred. 
Uh, I've heard you want, I've heard you talk about this one a lot. I like hatred a this lot. This is your pet card. I don't know if it's one of my pet cards because I actually don't know if I have it in any of my decks right now. I don't know if any of my decks necessarily want it. But Aurora specifically is a deck that should want it. For those who don't know about hatred, it's an instant. It's three and two black, so five mana. And it reads, pay X life, target creature gains plus X plus O until end of turn. So basically in Aloro where you're almost always going to have significantly more life than anyone else on the field, you're just going to kill a person with hatred. And there's a pretty good chance you're still going to have more life than anybody else. So fairly frequently it just reads kill target player and still be at 40 life. Well, it's especially nice if you put it on a creature with lifelink. Right. Pay a bunch of life to power that up hurt someone, gain all that life back. Mm-hmm. Or a creature with infect, it's even easier because you, you can get away with paying less life and kill them. But but even like... Oh, dude, you're just as mean as mad. But even like worst case scenario, if you're putting it on your Birds of Paradise or something, um, in you know, a black-green deck, that's not a Laurel, I guess, but like if you're putting it on your Will-o'-the-Wisp that you're running for some reason and swinging in, paying 40 life to kill somebody if it's the last person left alive is absolutely worth doing. And it's only in 3% of a Laurel decks and it should be in a lot more. Now, I will note, you know, we're talking about how um, Ghost Town hasn't been printed in a while. Well, Hatred is also looking at, it's like 20 years old. And it's on the reserve list, so it's not a cheap card. It's about $10 now. But it was half that six months ago, and six months from now, it wouldn't surprise me if it was more than 10 So if you want one, I would get one now. But it's a really, really good card in Aloro, and it's a really good card in a lot of decks. Yeah, it's one of those cards like Tainted Strike that will really surprise players. A lot of those combat tricks aren't what people expect in a black deck, but Hatred, Tainted Strike, there are a lot of options that black has to really just pull the wool out from over people's eyes or, or however the phrase goes. It's a really big blowout. Yeah, I like all of our picks this week. I think all of them are, are definitely cards that should be getting a little more love than they are. Yeah, agreed. And maybe there's some commanders out there that we think should get a little bit more love, but right now, these are the top commanders as we see them. Atraxa, Marin, Brea, Olaro. And, you know, that's a pretty respectable cast list. I think that those do help describe the variety that you can find within EDH pretty well. And with that, I think we're going to call this episode to our close. Those were our thoughts on the top commanders of all time. I'd like to thank my co-hosts for joining me. And if uh, any of our listeners would like to find us, where can they find you all? So, yeah, I'm, I'm Matt Morgan. You can find me on Twitter uh, at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. On Facebook, I'm Matt Morgan. I put my name on everything. Instagram, if you're into that, I guess. Yeah. And I'm Dana Roach. You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. And I also host a weekly podcast, Commander Central, cmdrcentral.com. You can find us or on Libsyn. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. That's S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. And of course, you can find all of our articles on the EDHREC as well. You can follow EDHREC on Facebook and Twitter at EDHREC and the EDHREC subreddit if you have a question or request for a new site feature. Also, if the EDHREC Facebook page gets 5,000 likes, there's going to be a giveaway. So head on over there to smash that like button for a chance at a cool prize. Like Dana said, you can check out his other podcast at cmdrcentral.libsyn.com. You can check us out on iTunes or at edhretcast.libsyn.com or contact us at edhretcast at gmail.com. You can also find this podcast and more on EDHREC's very own community content spotlight section where we feature as many other commander content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by EDHREC's own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, and until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck.
No, we didn't get the good dog bark this week.